0: You're listening to 91.7 FM WSUW in Whitewater, Wisconsin. You're listening to Rashkin Report. This is 91.7 FM WSUW in Whitewater, Wisconsin. And for once, uh, I am very excited to have a guest on the program that actually hails, of, you know, that also teaches at Whitewater. And it is Professor Stanislav Wasotsky, Assistant Professor of Sociology and Criminology at our here, University of Wisconsin in Whitewater. Stas, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, It's uh, exciting to have a guest that, like I said, that is uh, right here in Whitewater because it seems like most of the guests on this program have come from all over the world, but you are uh, actually, you're in Milwaukee-based, I'm Beloit-based, and and Whitewater is what brought us together. Um, How did you end up in Whitewater and uh, um, considering your area of expertise, um, how does Whitewater and Wisconsin fit into that?
1: So I ended up at Whitewater, not unlike a lot of people in academia, you know, you sort of go where there are positions. But uh, one of the things that I loved about Whitewater when I came for the interview was that uh, they had not only a position that Fits my uh, academic background. So they were specifically looking to hire someone who taught courses in terrorism and violence. Uh, but also, the department that I'm in, the sociology and criminology department, is an incredibly supportive department and has been just a really great place to be. And, and it's allowed me to thrive in a way that uh, I. Did not because I, I actually came from another position uh and it's been great so uh, coming to that's sort of what brought me to whitewater and then in, in terms of my research, uh, as we'll discuss, I do research on hate groups and their anti-fascist opposition and the conflicts between them. And Wisconsin is, is kind of an interesting place for that because if, if you looked at most formal kinds of assessments of hate group activity in Wisconsin, you, you would think that Wisconsin was actually a, a relatively safe place when it comes to that kind of stuff. Uh, There's not that many groups, probably a little under a dozen or a dozen or so groups that the Southern Poverty Law Center registers as hate groups in Wisconsin. Uh, We don't Seem to have a lot of formal kind of supremacist activity But uh, one of the distinctions that I make in my research and in talking about this kind of work Is that the kinds of formal organizations that are tracked by groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center? uh, Are only the tip of a larger informal iceberg And so what Wisconsin does seem to have is a lot of kind of underground activity. And we saw that uh, sort of come to the fore in uh, recent months where a white supremacist uh, blew up his apartment and uh, died in the explosion in Beaverdam, Wisconsin. Uh, We've seen in the congressional candidacy of Paul Nealon for uh, Paul Ryan's old seat, out and out white supremacists and and certainly there's the history of the sick temple shooting uh, by uh, Wade Michael Page and people of that sort so Wisconsin has a lot of hate group activity it's just not the kind that's often uh, tracked so that, what made you, what, really made you
0: what made you originally interested in this line of work? What made you interested in researching uh, hate groups? I think a lot of people, um, you know, it, it falls somewhere between nasty and negativity. And, and most mm-hmm. of us try to steer clear of negativity in our lives. And here you are saying, you know what, I'm going to look at this and, and look at it under a microscope and, and really dig into it. And what made you interested in this research?
1: Well, I've had... I'd say almost a lifelong fascination with this kind of research or or this kind of uh, topic. Uh, I grew up sort of at my grandfather's knee, listening to his tales of uh, World War II and and fighting Nazis and uh, being the grandson of Holocaust survivors. It was something that, that always was an issue for me. And then I remember being probably about nine or 10 years old and seeing a news story about simon wiesenthal and the work that nazi hunters were doing uh in the 1970s and 80s sort of tracking down people who had served the nazi regime and then as i became a teenager i got involved in subculture and punk rock right around the same time that racist skinheads became a part of uh sort of the the fabric of that subculture, and it became a a space of a lot of conflict. So that when I went into college and and I majored in sociology, it was already something that I was deeply interested in. And uh, when I went to Northeastern University in Boston, I I had the privilege of taking a sociology of prejudice class with Jack Levin and working with Jack McDevitt, who co-authored with uh, Professor Levin, one of the first books on hate crimes. And that really kind of sealed it for me. And, and basically, since I was an undergrad, I've been working in this area. I did an internship at uh, the Center for Applied Study of Ethnoviolence, uh, which studied uh, hate, hate groups and bias crime and things of that nature. And, and just I've been at it ever since.
0: Interesting, because I was in a ska band back in my college days as well. <laughs> and, uh, but that was back in Utah, and in Utah that's how white kids got crazy, because you could be having all sorts of crazy fun in a ska band, but there was no alcohol involved because it had that kind of a vegan subculture feel to it. So that, that seemed like how you know Mormon kids got wild and crazy, but uh, I know that obviously outside of Utah, and, and probably even in Utah, that is, even that genre uh, often had a different undertone altogether. Um, in And I guess in that vein, what is the similarities or differences between Nazis as we know them from movies about World War II or even Indiana Jones movies and, and Nazis that we see or hear about these days?
1: Right. So a lot of the, the to, to begin with the kind of popular conception of Nazis is really caricatured. I mean, they're sort of generic bad guys. So what you see in movies is a lot of characters without any sort of ideology behind them. So I think in pop culture, we don't get a lot of the ideas. We just sort of see Nazi and equals bad guy. Uh, But there are differences between sort of the the classical forms of fascism and Nazism that existed in the thirties and forties and contemporary neo-fascism, neo-Nazism, I I usually just refer to it all as supremacist movements because I see them as not just uh, racial supremacists. They're often gender supremacists and religion supremacists and uh, sexual orientation supremacists so I just call them supremacists. So to just highlight a few of the differences uh, I'll point out. Uh, so in terms of uh, classical fascism is very much oriented around a belief in a, a strong man kind of cult personality, central leadership and a hierarchical bureaucracy and that orientation often drove the kind of militarism of the original Nazis and fascists. And that militarism then drove a desire for violence and violence was seen as something that makes people, uh, better people. It, it made people who commit violence, uh, seem not only physically, but spiritually better. And that violence was often in the service of a kind of historic mission. And so they would uh, fulfill that historic mission by elevating the nation and particularly the nation in the case of Nazism was a racialized kind of concept. Uh, And that was done usually by trying to bring people together against a series of enemies. And those enemies were often what they saw as uh, unjust elites. uh, And usually those unjust elites were framed as outsiders, particularly Jewish people. And then parasitic people who were sort of at the bottom of the social hierarchy so that that's kind of classical nazism in a nutshell it can be very complicated. There's lots and lots of work on it. Uh, And the way to kind of distinguish that is to think about it in terms of contemporary supremacist movements are organized differently, but share many of the same core ideas so that they still believe in a kind of supremacy of, of, of the nation or, or of a race and one that involves a historic mission. They certainly are driven by violence and, and this notion of violence as is, is making individuals spiritually better. And they have the same kinds of framing in, in that they still see uh, a set of illegitimate elites at the top and they still see a set of parasitic people kind of at the bottom of the society and in a kind of disenfranchised middle. Uh, so that that stuff is sort of similar. The differences tend to be more in terms of organizing so that the days of uh, kind of cult of personality, centralized Party kind of organization for supremacists are mostly over what you see now is a model that they refer to as leaderless resistance And in that model you have an idea So it's these sets of ideas that are really driving things and those ideas can be subscribed to by any number of Individuals they don't have to necessarily join some sort of party or join some sort of organization What they're more likely to do is to latch onto the idea and then become part of a more diffuse kind of social movement. They might become involved in subculture. It's much more subcultural now, so that you see this sort of linked to uh, certain kinds of style and music and things of that nature. And it's something where individuals can move in and out. And that's what inspires a lot of the kind of lone actor actions, the, these kinds of attacks that might manifest themselves in either bias crimes or uh, um, sort of mass terrorist attacks like we saw with Dylan Roof in Charleston that we see with people like uh, Glenn Fraser, uh Actually, Glenn Miller, either way, he uses a bunch of different names. Uh, and in any case, we, we see these kinds of actions happen because of this kind of leaderless resistance model. So there isn't really one person saying, like, you go do this. There's not sort of this idea of action.
0: Okay. Um, well, I, I, I'm i just sitting here writing down questions because I don't want to interrupt because you're giving a lot of, I think, really valuable information. And, and thank you for answering my question in such a complete manner. So I will first of all remind our listeners that you're listening to WSUW 91.7 FM, The Edge in Whitewater, Wisconsin. This is Rashkin Report, and I'm your host, Yuri Rashkin. And today my guest is uh, Stanislav Vysotsky, who is Assistant Professor of Sociology and Criminology here at the University of Wisconsin and Whitewater, um, and uh, his area of research is uh, a process of uh, desistance from uh, racist skinhead subculture, as well as the intersections of white supremacist and men's rights language and framing. Framing, of course, is a fascinating concept to begin with, but um, men's rights, this seems kind of the opposite of the Me Too movement. Um, is that is that the Antifa of Me Too you know?
1: I don't know if I'd characterize it as the Antifa Me Too. I'd I'd more characterize me too as the Antifa of men's rights. Uh, maybe. All right. But but the, the way to think about this is that uh speaking of these kinds of subcultures, uh one of the ones that I uh indicate in some of the work that I've done uh, is uh, a, something that's developed probably over the last 15, 20 years, which is an online kind of subculture. Uh-huh. And we've seen a lot of uh, so far, informal. Although people are starting to work on on actual formal uh, empirical research on this, but we we've had uh, kinds of observations by journalists who've pointed out and, and commentators who've pointed out that the men's rights and, and more recently the, the term incel has been used a lot. When we look at uh, both the uh, recent shooting, school shooting in Texas, and also the van attack in Toronto, uh, so it's which a we should probably working.
0: remind those of our listeners who may not be aware that incel, I guess, means involuntarily celibate, and and this is something yes. that I've you know learned meaning of that term fairly recently because of these shootings, but incel is now uh, part of our dictionary vocabulary.
1: Yeah, and, and it's part of the, that kind of sphere, what they refer to as the manosphere, the, this sort of space online of men who uh, feel in one way or another like they haven't uh, achieved uh, things that they are entitled to in one way or another. And rather than blaming uh, larger social structures, rather than blaming themselves, what they do is they sort of turn around and blame women. And this is a a set of ideas that really have floated around for for quite a while. I mean, you you had people like Mark LePain uh, engaging in a mass shooting in Montreal, Canada, basically because he blamed women for him not getting into school. And and that was, uh, I want to say, in the 1990s. So these ideas like is this. Tr- tr- like i'm
0: trying to figure out how to say this right i guess uh like almost replacing racism that the gender wars are are almost replacing racism because that i think is it so al- almost sounds like it's it's not as like, i I don't want to say use trendy but there it seems like these uh niche movements you know go in waves and right now you know we have more of this gender conflict versus race conflict is that accurate or or is all of it is kind of bubbling up?
1: Uh, all of it's kind of bubbling up. And, and one of the things that I want to point out is that the, the gender that this kind of manosphere is usually the place where a lot of people start and make their way into the broader kind of supremacist movement. So it's almost like it's one section of a larger, uh, basically a larger movement that is built around ideas of supremacy. Because once you begin with, certain kinds of assumptions about entitlement, particularly around gender, then it becomes really easy for people to kind of come in and talk about other forms of entitlement. And so, so like able
0: hating to... women is a gateway to other supremacy uh, fields. I yes. Know. yes, exactly.
1: And and that's one of the things that, uh, we, like I said, a lot of journalists and, and commentators have sort of picked up on and, and written pieces about. And we're starting to see empirical evidence that actually indicates that hating women is a way of moving into other movements, such as the white nationalist or white supremacist movement. In that, that case, and, do
0: you feel that Me Too is a response to this or is this response to Me Too or does it not really matter?
1: Uh, to some extent, I don't think. I think Me Too developed independently, okay. and so what we're okay. seeing is uh, an independent phenomenon that's happening in light of the kind of cultural and social context that we're, that you have the, this assertion of uh, masculine or, or male dominance happening. But then at the same time, you also have a feminist movement that's happening at the same time. So in a way, they, they sort of look like they're polar opposites right they look like they're opposing each other but to some extent they're not necessarily responding to each other in the same way although i will say that within that kind of men's space that that manosphere they're much more concerned about me too than me too is with this kind of Manosphere. I mean, Me Too is really talking about uh, what's happening in the larger, broader culture, and it's really sort of pointing out uh, both the 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 kind of ubiquitousness of sexual violence and and sexual exploitation of women, uh, so that they're pointing to the way in which that's mainstream. uh, Whereas this Manosphere exists, you know, as a kind of it's on the margins of the the mainstream discourse, you know, it sort of bubbles up when we have these kind of violent incidents or when we have some, you know, egregious harassment and doxing campaigns so, like so Me day. Too.
0: So Me Too is more of a mainstream and and this is a fringe on the sides of of that mainstream conflict.
1: Yeah, and and I think that the, the way to think about that that Manosphere is that it's it's more angry about Me Too you know, that the the men involved in that kind of thing are angry about Me Too, because Me Too is just, they see it as just another feminist attack, right? They see it as just another way of sort of taking away their entitlements. And whereas Me Too is often focused on pointing out the way in which uh, men in positions of power, men in positions of privilege, men who are in any sort of position in regard to women have used their normative the sort of normal relationships with women. And, and by relationships, I don't mean that in a romantic sense, right? I mean, that in a sociological sense, right? That, you know, anything from like a work environment to the, you know, friends, the, the, the things we know about sexual assault and sexual violence that it comes from men, who women know who are in their lives. It's not that kind of stranger. And so me too is trying to point out how sexual violence is, is a norm is normative, right? It's, it's a part of women's lives in a way that is built around the, the organization of our society for men's benefit. Whereas, okay.
0: yeah. um, professor then can you, you know, because I feel like we're kind of, Almost dancing on the outside of describing exactly who we're speaking about when it comes to this manosphere or, or in cells or whatever, first of all we're speaking about as far as I can tell white males um mm-hmm. and and when you talk about uh, me too and and the power correlations there i I don't really perceive maybe I'm wrong the men the white men in this manosphere as being particularly high status. I think part of their problem is that they don't have a high status. Um, and that's another thing that irks them. Um, so can you describe kind of kind of the average member of this manosphere? Who who is it? This this well, box Yeah,
1: the, the the irony is that they're really not as low status. They just think that they're not high status. If so, that makes so any sense. So low self
0: esteem doesn't mean that they have low status.
1: Yeah. And, and I wouldn't even I wouldn't even say necessarily it's it's built around low self-esteem. It's It's built around this perception that they're that they don't have a certain kind of status. But it's more built around a perception of entitlement. Right. So that you're dealing with white men who live in a society because as a sociologist we sort of understand these things as systems right as as ways of organizing social life and so when we think about those systems the, the systems of gender and race relations are set up in such a way that there are structural benefits to being male to being white to being heterosexual and so there's this assumption that of entitlement right there there's this assumption that because you're white you're male you're heterosexual there are certain things that you're owed and so you have this group of men who perceive that they're owed something they perceive that they're not getting it uh which is you know which could be sort of put into question as well that that whether they're not getting it because of you know anything from personal failures to lack of you know, social graces or etiquette or or anything like that. But there's a sort of assumption of like, I'm owed a thing, I am supposed to get this thing, and I'm not getting it, or I don't think I'm getting it, right? And because they don't think they're getting it, uh, they view it as something that they're being, you know, sort of deprived of, and they're not being deprived of it from their perspective. Uh, by a culture and a society that sets up unrealistic standards for men, that sets up unrealistic standards for women as well, that that sets up a set of social interactions that are not that benefit certain people at the expense of others, uh, that sets up certain men as being more powerful than others in competition what they see it as is a culture that's shifting and those shifts in the culture are the fault of feminists right this is all women's fault the women are somehow the controllers of the kinds of access to entitlement that they're supposed to have when in reality it's an entire kind of complex social order that is Again, really not depriving them of anything; they just perceive it as depriving them of something.
0: Professor Waszczuk, do you feel that this is a winnable battle? Is this something that uh, we, we can all be, you know, at peace and can't we all just get along? Or, or, is, or how do we get beyond this? Or do we just go? This is a fringe. Why should we care about the fringe? Um, just, you know, whatever. We we don't care and move on. And you know, what what's the way to deal with this effectively? and and to best way to address this problem i'm thinking um i guess uh, i'm trying to think of uh malcolm gladwell or somebody who wrote about uh, somebody who was trying to deal with uh, the uh, the the ku-klux Klan, uh, and uh this person leaked all their vocabulary uh to like comic book makers uh of superman and so superman was fighting uh, the, the Klansmen. And because because all these children now were using the vocabulary, it destroyed the vocabulary of the clan because they could no longer use it um, is it like basically almost language of ridicule is is there how do we deal with this? What's an effective way of solving because we're, we're discussing the problem What's the solution?
1: Well, the solution's complicated uh, no please no, go necessarily is <laughs> sorry I mean- <laughs> yeah, I wish I had a simple answer. Uh, you know, if, if there was a simple answer, then then we could solve it overnight, and then we'd all be much happier for it. Uh, but the the one thing I will say is that the ignore them and they'll go away tactic is probably the least effective uh, because as marginal groups, uh, what we know as sociologists is that a group that operates outside of, of sort of public view and that people don't, and don't have an awareness of, uh, Exists in a point of of what we call abeyance and that movements operate in waves, right? So a movement will be kind of down for a little while, right? It'll be something that's not really in the public sphere that doesn't really have uh, access to uh, sort of mainstream outlets and things of that nature. And then something will happen. There'll be some sort of event or there'll be a crisis or there'll be a trigger of some sort. And that movement will suddenly come into the public for. For example, the white supremacist movement and the candidacy and election of Donald Trump. A lot of people did not really expect to see the the sort of scope of the white supremacist movement that uh, came out of the woodwork really over the last couple of years. Uh, And because it had been in advance, right? It, It had been underground. It had been largely ignored. It had been something that people weren't paying attention to. And what happened there is that it built a base. There was a certain capacity for recruitment. There was a certain capacity for people to organize. And when that kind of moment comes, it's able then to mobilize. So we know that the notion of ignore them and they'll go away is something that really does to some extent help empower these movements because it gives them a a kind of space to build without necessarily having to worry about, uh, being confronted or, or being opposed in any way. So that's that's the first part. Uh, the next part is that there's a series of, of kind of ways in which we can work with uh, you know, confronting or opposing these kinds of things. One of those ways is partially public ridicule. And that's more effective for uh, galvanizing an opposition than it is for really opposing these movements. Because uh, to some extent ridiculing them doesn't really do much, uh, because when people are involved in these sorts of things, they're getting a, a kind of collective identity from one another. And so if people are ridiculing them, they see that ridicule as a challenge, right? You know, they they see it as a, a way of, of kind of coming together, building a, a group solidarity, and saying, you know, we're not like them and, and screw whoever's ridiculing us. You know, they don't get it. This is just a sign of like, the you know whether it's the the kind of manosphere incel people that's just a sign of feminists or that's just but, a but sign that's of, what
0: they want to do they want to ridicule people by calling them snowflakes and so forth even mm-hmm. though the you know these races so they were the manosphere members of the manosphere are the ones who really get bent out of shape immediately and really are the real snowflakes but you know, yeah. you know making calling them snowflakes i guess that that ridicule is unacceptable
1: yeah. Oh, I'm not saying it's unacceptable. I'm not effective. simply saying it, it doesn't really work. To, it doesn't really do much to stop them from organizing. It's not really going to change anybody's mind. It does make us feel better, you know, <laughs> and and there's a value to that, right? There's, there's a value to having, uh, you know, a, a, an opposition movement feel good about itself. You know, and, and I think so their ridicule is really good. So it's an outward like ridicule is a really good outward facing strategy. So, you know, if there was going to be like a supremacist march in a town and, you know, you wanted to ridicule them, that's really good because that creates really good kind of, uh, oppositional propaganda, right? You know, I mean, I still see people, uh, passing around images from 20 years ago when a group of protesters, I want to say in like Kentucky, I think it was Louisville, uh, dressed up as clowns and made fun of a, a white supremacist march, you know? So, so that that's good, right? Like it passes things around. It makes people feel really good. Uh, But really, I come from a kind of a social movements perspective, which is uh, often very different from the way in which a lot of uh, mainstream discourse around opposing these groups comes from. And for me, from a social movements perspective, it's about thinking of like, how do you keep a social movement from mobilizing? How do you keep it from sort of getting out there and achieving its goals. And so the way to do that really is to, uh, make sure that the social movement is unable to actually mobilize so that, uh, a lot of times really opposition that will keep them from being able to, if they're planning a march, stopping them from actually marching. If they're having a rally somewhere, uh, in Sacramento in 2016, uh, counter protesters showed up before a white supremacist rally and they s- mobilized on the steps of the state capitol in california so that the supremacists couldn't have their route right so th- these are ways of sort of demobilizing and then there is uh, a second idea of uh increasing the cost of participation so you know that there are benefits and there are costs to participating in a movement right so for a lot of people involved in these kinds of things the benefits are that you get status you get you know if we're thinking about again like that manosphere right is, is people who perceive that they don't have status well you go online and you get all these people who suddenly like you and who suddenly see you as important and suddenly you feel special you know, and the same is true for for supremacists. It's it's that you go and you join this thing, and suddenly you have a group of friends, and suddenly you have people who think that you're important, and you have you know you become like a big fish in a small pond, and that's really great, right? It it serves these kinds of purposes. So that's the benefits. Now there are also costs, right? You know, we know again through. Uh, sociological research that uh, people who do identify as supremacists often try to kind of publicly minimize their identification because out in the general public to be an open kind of white supremacist is, uh, perceived as a negative thing, right? We have, there's a stigma around that. So they, they do things to kind of try to minimize that stigma, right? They, they, in their own little world, they'll play it up, but then in the general public, they're trying to play it down. And so, uh, one of the strategies that, that people use is to make it impossible to do that in, in the wider world, right? Uh, so you do these kinds of public shaming and public stigma campaigns And that increases the cost of participation because then you have to think about well what's going to happen when I have to go out into the world and my coworkers all know that I'm a bigot of some sort or another, and so that you know helps to uh, that also helps the demobilization aspect of things. And then there's also a third strategy that that opposition movements use, which is to you know recruit people out, and that that one's. Probably the most challenging in these aspects, but there are people who are doing that kind of recruitment out so you have uh, Groups like life after hate who are working to try to get people out of hate groups and encourage them to leave So Mm -hmm. these these are the the kind of effective strategies that that we see empirically Right, right Um, Let me ask you this
0: Uh, do you feel that well, have you had students that have uh, that have come to you uh, to speak about either experience that they've had or them being recruited or, um, you know, kind of uh, among among student population. Do you see uh, these trends and this wave making an inroad? So
1: it's one of those things where I haven't had too many students, and that might be uh, self-selection. You know, you, you get a certain kind of student based on, on the topics that I teach and certainly based on the way I teach them that, uh, you know, that they, they're not necessarily going to be a part of this. Uh, I've had more students who have had uh, friends who, who've had people in their lives who've become involved in these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. and. You know, they, they they tell stories. So I, I teach a course called The Sociology of Hate, and I've had students—we we have a panel where I ask students to volunteer uh, at the end of the semester to talk about their experiences. And, and certainly in the past, I've had students volunteer and talk about uh, having friends who've become involved in supremacist movements. Uh, I've had students talk about growing up in communities that are dominated mm-hmm. by these movements. I I had one student talk about growing up in a town where there's an annual clan march, where there was a a large faction of Aryan nations and and things of that nature. So it's something that we we often don't think about it as being uh, fairly commonplace, but it's actually much more common than than we would think. Uh, But when it comes to students, uh, you tend to at least in my case, I, I tend not to get the ones who have been involved in these sorts of things and, and certainly not in, in any sort of like current capacity.
0: Okay. Do you feel that this wave is right now on decline or on the rise? Is this connected with Donald Trump being president? Is this other forces that are preceding it? Uh, how long do these waves last? Because it seems like it's a cycle. I guess maybe I'm wrong.
1: Oh, it's definitely a cycle, uh, you know, and in... And, and, researchers and social movements talk about it as being, uh, cycles or, or like I said, waves, right. Where it sort of comes up and then comes down, and, you know, and we have these cycles where it's sort of like, it's really public and it's out there. And then, uh, one of two things happens, basically, uh, you either get what you, uh, you, you set out to achieve, right. And, and then you sort of demobilize because you got what you achieved or you don't get what you achieve. And, and you're sort of, your movement falls apart a little bit because people are like, well, we, we seem to have failed. Uh, Uh, And if we're looking at it in terms of mobilization cycles, uh, certainly when it came to public mobilizations, when it came to uh, being out uh, in in terms of like protests and rallies and and things of that nature – we beginning really with the candidacy of Donald Trump, you, you saw a, an increase in the cycle, uh, for supremacist movements and they were steadily mobilizing, uh, certainly in response to his nomination and then in response to his election. So in 2017, you saw a, a large number of mobilizations and those mobilizations, uh, waned significantly so right after charlottesville which was kind of a pr disaster for them it really just collapsed and so now they've kind of you know they've sort of gone back underground and and they've gone back into kind of the again what i mentioned earlier the the abeyance structures these kinds of spaces that are outside of the mainstream view and they're they're rebuilding, they're thinking about how to kind of move forward. Uh, you know, they're trying to figure out what to do next. Uh, and, and it helps that there was such massive public opposition to them. So it was this sort of one-two punch of Charlottesville, and then followed by, of course, the, the Boston Rally where there were forty thousand people in opposition to, you know, like maybe a hundred supremacists, uh, you know. So it, it's it's really it's waned, and it really is just a matter of something else that's going to stoke the mobilization. And one of the things that that we might be, you know, seeing is that for a trigger point, if Things go the way that people are predicting at at this point, uh, you know, it's hard to believe people's predictions when it comes to elections, given what happened in 2016, but if there's going to be a blue wave in November you might see a renewed kind of mobilization starting in 2019 with uh, people mobilizing again uh, sort of under the guise of supporting the trump agenda and supporting the trump presidency because the mobilizations in 2017 were also about supporting donald trump
0: so the the more the better things may look in the mainstream the more active the fringe gets because they Sometimes. are response Sometimes,
1: okay. and we we see that. Well, it, it depends. You know, we saw that with Barack but Obama. But is
0: it kind of a general general trend because it is a response to something else that goes on in in society and, and at large?
1: Exactly. So so to to give you kind of two two kind of dissimilar examples. Uh, when Barack Obama was elected president, you saw a massive Uh, kind of mobilization and interest in the supremacist movement so big that uh, stormfront.org, the largest white supremacist website crashed because it couldn't handle the capacity of users on election night. Uh, And then you saw Southern Poverty Law Center uh, tracked an increase of uh, hate groups uh, and they had record numbers of hate groups by 2010. And then again with Donald Trump, so you would think with Donald Trump that, that, you know, maybe you'd see a demobilization because you feel like they're maybe getting what they want. But with Donald Trump, what it demonstrated was that there was a climate for their ideas. And so either either kind of scenario, right, when their opposition seems to win, such as in the election of Barack Obama, they mobilize because they feel like they're under attack. Or when people who are kind of when it looks like their ideas are getting more mainstream traction, they'll mobilize again because they feel like they can bring people in.
0: So the people that are there will be mobilized regardless and will want to mobilize regardless. But what I'm also hearing in what you're saying is that when you have an African-American or black man in power, then more of the, uh, the, the racism issue comes up. Uh, and when you have a woman running for president and followed by Me Too movement, you have more gender, uh, people who are upset about uh, gender issues that are mobilizing. So in a way, we can still blame Hillary Clinton for everything.
1: <laughs> uh, there Joking. is that, but it is it is what you begin to see is, and, and you did see that, certainly, that there is a lot of misogyny in uh the kind of right-wing opposition to Hillary Clinton, but that misogyny is—there's sort of a broad swath of misogynists in our society. So then, uh,
0: if Bernie Sanders therefore, let's say, becomes the nominee in 2020, we can expect a wave of anti-Semitism?
1: Yes. I, I would I would absolutely say yes that okay. there will be a way of anti-Semitism that there will be uh, you know both overt and more covert forms of anti-Semitism in response to Bernie Sanders uh, and largely because we already saw aspects of that in response to even Hillary Clinton. There was the infamous Donald Trump tweet where he tweeted out a uh, white supremacist image that uh, involved Hillary Clinton being associated with a Star of David, which he tried to excuse by saying it was a, a you know, sheriff star. And, you know, the use of terms like globalists, the use of, uh, you know, a number of anti-Semitic uh, sort of themes and tropes and memes uh, within the, the kind of politics of the, the Trump campaign. Uh, so the, these are things that are already existing. And so having someone like Bernie Sanders, who is already Jewish, will simply amplify that.
0: Um, I'll remind listeners that you're listening to WSUW 91.7 FM, The Edge in Whitewater, Wisconsin. This is Rashkin Report, and I'm your host, Yuri Rashkin. And my guest today is Assistant Professor of Sociology and Criminology at the University of Wisconsin, right here in Whitewater, Dr. Stanislav Wasotsky. Um And uh, he's a Assistant Professor of, well, as I just mentioned, Sociology and Criminology. Um, professor, the, the area that this program usually centers on has to do with Russians in, in some way. And the experience, uh, you know, that that I've observed through media uh, between uh, the relationship between, let's say, Kremlin and the nationalist uh, groups in Russia is that they're kind of puppets of the state in the sense that they're kind of brown shirts. They're there to cause some fear and havoc and and to beat up on people that the police may not want to mess with necessarily, but these Cossacks or whatever, you know, different forms of uh, supremacists really uh, attack. Not to mention that Kremlin has been hosting um, extremists and nationalists from all sorts of, uh, you know, from all over the world in Russia. While they say that they're strongly anti-fascist, and even their rhetoric uh, of fighting uh, the war in Ukraine has to be, you know, how Russia is anti-fascist and Ukrainians are fascists, but Russia is actually growing and and fostering, you know, homegrown fascists. Not to mention that they are busy uh, sponsoring all sorts of extremists all over the world. So, in your research, do you see any of that Russian trace in the sense that either money? or influence through propaganda or or any of uh, or anything like that
1: yeah russia has really probably for the last decade been the model for the uh, supremacist movement in the u.s like they they've looked to russia you know i certainly remember uh, probably about 10 12 years ago the uh the sort of the supremacist movement, certainly the, the racist skinheads in Russia had become so violent that they were murdering people virtually daily in biased crimes or political attacks. And for supremacists in the United States, that that's something that they aspire to. You know, they they would love a climate where they could go out and engage in violence with impunity. So it's that model. But then you also see uh, people like uh, Alexander Dugan, who is a a huge ideological influence on the contemporary movement. Uh, You have a direct tie between him and Richard Spencer through Richard Spencer's uh, wife. Who is a, a major translator? Connect- right. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's a major connection to Russian fascists, uh, and and so we we have these kinds of direct connections where they they are clearly uh, operating in a you know we have a global world and we have a global world of fascism, and Russia in many ways has become a, a center for the the. Burgeoning fascist movement in this global world. So it's it's a space where ideas are germinating It's a space where movements can be modeled from it's a space where obviously we're seeing uh, Certainly financial ties to major parties in Europe Uh, right now I don't know if there's been any direct kind of empirical evidence of, of funding for groups in the United States though I don't know. I, I wouldn't. Well, and that's, I
0: guess that's what I was really curious about, because we know already that Russia has been funneling money through NRA. So, mm-hmm. you know, curious to see if in your research you see that uh, in financial involvement, but perhaps I mean, obviously, the records are not public.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the other thing is that when, when you're dealing with uh, kind of marginalized groups and marginalized characters, you know, the, these aren't uh, a sort of standard NGO 501c3 organizations where they file taxes and, and you get to kind of look over their records and be able to get public records or across what you're dealing with here are often individuals. Right. And they're often operating as individuals or operating as, you know, if they have got any sort of like public uh, face, they're operating as an LLC, you know, a small sort of private corporation and things like that.
0: Right. And Uh, so what what we've seen in the past is when Soviet Union fell, a lot of terrorist organizations around the world suffered because the source Mm -hmm. of financing dried up. So by that logic and and seeing the connection that we're seeing that you you just confirmed, I guess, is that uh, if Putin's regime goes away for whatever reason under any sort of circumstances almost, uh, then we should expect uh, this wave of mobilization in the United States of of, uh, Nazis to die down as well.
1: Not necessarily. Not necessarily, Uh, overly optimistic, okay. Yeah, they've been financially (laughs) autonomous I mean, since the beginning, they, they've been financially autonomous. They, they've sort of operated. Uh, but the, the movement as it exists today is partially a product of a, a combination of criminal activities so that uh, it was something that existed uh, to some extent because of illegal uh Gun sales and drug sales in the 70s and 80s, which linked it to a number of criminal organizations, particularly like outlaw biker gangs and things of that nature. Uh, and then by the 1990s, because of the uh, growth of subculture, the the growth of racist skinheads and and movements of that sort, uh, a burgeoning of national socialist black metal subculture, things of that nature the movement actually began to make a lot of its money simply from subculture, selling music, selling T-shirts, selling clothing, things of that nature. And when that was tied to large political organizations, they were able to operate autonomously because uh, at least in the late 1990s, by around the turn of the millennium, resistance records, which was the largest of these operations, was uh, grossing a million dollars a year. And so you didn't necessarily need to have a movement that was being funneled, funded by criminal activity uh, that could now operate legitimately by selling the kind of subcultural uh, style of being a fascist. So on and that so, level, it
0: is, it is sufficiently grassroots and sufficiently organic to be able to withstand a loss of a major supporter.
1: Exactly. And really, at this point, it's being driven primarily by the the kind of crowdsourcing campaigns you know so that uh when they went off of patreon so patreon kicked off a lot of the more extreme supremacists uh about a year or so ago. And, uh, so when they were kicked off, they simply started their own, uh, forum called hatreon Um, and they have their own way of, they have their own way of crowdsourcing. You know, they have their own ways of, of making direct donations and they, they found ways around some of the legitimate, uh, sort of resources that they have online and so now you have these things you know you have these major podcasts you have these major sites like uh, the daily stormer who are able to simply raise money by going online starting up an account and saying make a donation
0: well my then i guess let's to wrap this up that this there's definitely a lot to think about that you've given me and and i'm sure all the listeners um professor what do you feel you know my experience is that whoever the story is about nobody else might read it but the people involved in the story will definitely read the story so if this is a conversation about the manosphere and uh, and this uh, culture of entitlement, we can rest assured that if nobody else listens to this, it's going to be somebody from that culture that is going to say, "Aha! They—they're talking about us. What are they saying?" What what would you say? What would you want to say to those uh, people, using the term loosely?
1: I would say to start thinking about the ways in which you feel deprived as being something more than the kind of narrative you've gotten, you know, begin to think about things as being organized in a certain way. Think, Think about the world as being more than simply a series of like plots and schemes. And to think about the way in which power really operates, that the best way to sort of understand the world is to Look beyond the simple narrative. Professor
0: Vasodsky, thank you so much for being on Rashkin Report and uh, good luck to you in your work. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You're listening to Rashkin Report.